Julie McIntyre, welcome to the New School of Commonweal. Julie, you are a medical herbalist with a specialty in the herbal treatment of Lyme disease. Uh, You're a teacher. You're the director of the Center for Earth Relations and the author of your new book, Sex and the Intelligence of the Heart, Nature, Intimacy, and Sexual Energy. You've studied political science, communications, Ayurveda, Reiki, medical herbalism, Weichel shamanism, and wilderness survival. That's quite a mix. But you are also a deep ecologist and what you call an earth ceremonialist, leading groups in the use of the sacred pipe, the medicine wheel, and vision quests. You recently directed a state ceremonial program for Native men in prison, and you work with young women to do ceremonial rites of transition into womanhood. In that role as earth ceremonialist, would you be willing to start our conversation with some words from your traditions? I would, Kira, thank you very much. So it's humbling to have one's journey sort of reflected back at the beginning of an interview, <laughs> and it's incredibly humbling and uh, sobering, actually. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. And impressive. Um, yep, yeah, right. So I do want to take a moment to, in that light, thank everyone who has um, been part of this journey, particularly want to thank the plants, all the plant people, their medicines, their bodies, their spirits, all that they bring to us. I want to thank all of my teachers, gender teachers, those in body and those in spirit, the elements, the elementals, all the spirit keepers of the four winds, of the east, the south, the west, and the north, those above and those below, the stone people that are so, so dear to my heart as much as the plants and the green nations, creator, grandfather, sweet mother earth, Gaia, all of her intelligence, all of her expressions, of which we as two-legged human beings are one of many, many expressions of Gaia. To thank and honor the ancestors, all those who come to be with us in this next hour, pray that we will be guided to help those who are listening, that you guide me so that I continue to be in service to the work that I came here to do, the work I've been doing, and the forms of the work that will change in the next years. Give thanks to all of these, all those that are in our hearts, our families, our friends, our loved ones. Yes, that we be in service to something greater than ourselves, something inside of ourselves, our soul urges, and that we may walk on this sweet, powerful, magnificent, intelligent, beautiful, wondrous Mother Earth, Gaia, with each breath, with each step as a, a prayer. Julie, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. I just want to say what a pleasure it is to have this conversation with you, and particularly to be able to start our conversation that way. That's really special. I think Commonweal is a place that focuses on healing, um, healing people and healing the planet through our programs, and I sense that your personal journey 
has had a similar goal of finding healing for yourself and allowing you to be able to help others, but always with an understanding that the health of the earth is uh, part of our own health and healing as well. Right. Yeah, it started really young. I I was lucky. I chose a family that um, were farmers and starting really young, having my, you know, bonding with our first mother, the original mother of the earth. Um, Growing up on a farm or being out in the wilderness is one of the quickest, strongest, potent, more potent way of bonding with the earth is um, putting our hands in the soil, tasting it, putting it in our mouth, crawling around on it. It's really an important part of our growth is, Right. And you are lucky because so many people don't start their life that way. Um, I know you had some challenges as you were growing up that you revealed in your book, but um, that does sound like a good way to start off a good relationship with Earth. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I just read an article earlier today about one of the reasons our immune systems are, are becoming weaker is because we're trying to create sterile environments and keeping, uh, you know, one of the most um, common responses when parents see their children putting dirt in their mouth <laughs> is to say, no, 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 you know, don't put that in your mouth. It's dirty, it's icky, um, you know, antibacterial soaps, um, sterile environments. It's really starting to cause, there's a price that we have to pay for that dramatic separation from basically life and adventures. And, um, you know, those bacteria and microbes that we take in our body when we taste in the earth, they have, they have a function. And not only bonding with the earth, but it's colonizing our, our body so that our immune system can be stronger and know how to respond in balance. And um, when things do come in to threaten our our life. Right. Yeah, that's good to keep in mind, not get overzealous with the antibacterial things. Yeah, go get dirty. Go get dirty. And I want to get back to that, and I want to get back to your book and your ceremonial work. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your work with, uh, your clinical work with Lyme disease, people who have Lyme disease. And the reason I want to do that is because we have a community that's very has a lot of interest in Lyme disease, partly because of a woman whose name is Caddy Nagel. She was a wonderful part of the Commonwealth community, and she recently passed away from um, complications from Lyme disease. She had it for many, many years, and she was an advocate for education around it and finding out more about it, and she would have loved to hear this conversation with you, so I'm sorry that she missed it. But oh, I am too. I'm sorry. I'm disturbing to hear stories like that. Yeah. But in her honor, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the Lyme protocol, which I know was developed by Stephen Buhner, mm-hmm. and maybe you can talk... Um, a little bit in general about Lyme disease and why it's been so difficult to diagnose and treat. 
sure. Um, let's see. Well, uh, where do I start? It's difficult to treat. It's difficult to diagnose. Um, and it's getting more challenging because in the beginning when Lyme disease was first coming out and first recognized as um, a bacteria, and it is a bacteria, it's a specific kind of bacteria, spirochete, um, which is the same genus as um, venereal disease. It's the same family of bacteria. There's, there was, and still is, a lot of difficulty in getting accurate tests, finding which tests, um, understanding what the tests are saying, sifting through all of the symptoms, and it's becoming more and more complicated because it's not just Lyme disease we're talking about anymore. There are tremendous amount of co-infections. And to, actually to say Lyme and co-infections isn't exactly accurate it's Lyme and co-infections because Lyme was the first one that was discovered. It could just as well be uh, mycoplasma or Bartonella, any of the co-infections. Um, those things really make things much more complicated mm. to sort through because some of the symptoms cross over um, and there's not real accurate testing. There's still... The CDC in this country is still denying things. I mean, I just read this infuriating thing. They, they're still saying that only black-legged ticks carry Lyme disease, which is completely untrue. Anything that is um, vector-borne or arthropod, which means um, they have exoskeletons, uh, insects, blood-transmitting insects, uh, mosquitoes, biting flies, ticks, Mites. Wow. Please. Um, yeah, it gets much more serious than we think or what we've been reading and told. Hmm. And is this, is this research that you've found this out or that where Stevens found this out, is that in his book? It's, the line book came out in 2005, the healing line book. Mm-hmm. And that was so seven years it's been out. Mm-hmm. There's been, a, even in seven years, there's been a tremendous amount of better research, good research, um, expanded thinking, thinking outside the box. So researchers are really starting to recognize the pervasiveness of even, say, mycoplasma, which is um, considered a co-infection, but mm-hmm. it's also responsible for a lot of things we call MS, rheumatoid arthritis, um, golf war syndrome. Um, it just goes on and on. And so that book will be updated probably in 2014 um, cause, because it needs to be. There's so much more information out there. In the meantime, he's done a lot of research. So there's an, he, has, he has new books coming out next year on the co-infections, Bartonella and Mycoplasma. Mm-hmm. And then the following year will be Ehrlichia and Babesia. Hmm. Great. And I know that I've seen, um, he has Lyme updates on your website as well. I've seen those. He does. And there's the Buner Healing Lyme um, forum, actually, where people can write in 
talking to the moderator and asking questions and then he responds in bulk. So a lot of it's come from Stephen's research and he's a tremendous researcher, um, brilliant actually in, in that way, and the two of us working with herbs specifically to see how they feel. Like when I work with clients, I take, I personally take everything I recommend to my clients so I know what it feels like in my body. I know what it's doing. Even though I'm not sick, I get a, an intimate relationship with the medicines I'm recommending. Mm-hmm. So between Stephen's research and I've been doing clinical research uh, working with people with Lyme disease and infections for almost almost a decade. Mm-hmm. So we compare notes a lot and support each other that way, and hopefully bringing out um, more effective protocols the more we understand the nature of these infections. Right. And I don't know um, exactly what happens when people start doing this herbal protocol. Um, But maybe you can let me know. Do do people... It seems like Lyme disease doesn't just go away. How how does it... How... What happens when people start on the the protocol and what kinds of um, healing do you find in your clients? Okay, so with the, the Lyme protocol, we'll just talk about that one now to keep things... Um, sure. <laughs> Lime is a spirochete. Actually, each organism has their favorite um, pathways um, that they go to in the body. And a lot of times, once they start on that pathway, if there's a weakness in the immune system or a weakness that's already pre-existing, they tend to collect there and take advantage of weaker systems. So with Lyme disease, the spirochetes, they particularly like collagen, soft tissues, um, aqueous membranes of the eyes, the heart, cartilage, um, and that's in the beginning. And, of course, as it goes on long term, then the symptoms become more complicated or there's greater chance for opportunistic uh, parasitic bacteria to also become part of the symptom picture. So when it's going into the knees, for example, the cartilage or collagen, it starts to feed, break down, because that's how it survives, is taking nutrition from those areas. And it creates a cytokine cascade, and cytokines are particular markers that point to inflammation. They're inflammatory markers, basically. Um, so then there's tremendous amount of inflammation, and that's causing pain, and it can radiate to different parts of the body. That's a real simplistic picture of it. Mm-hmm. So the herbal protocol addresses those specific um, symptoms. It addresses the pathways of destruction, basically, of the spirochete, reduces inflammation, reduces the symptoms and they're antimicrobial, antispirochetal, and antibacterial, even though like, a number of people were real concerned about killing the bugs, killing the spirochete. That does happen to some degree just by the nature of the herbs being antibacterial. That's not the focus of the protocol. The protocol is really to 
reduce symptoms so you feel better and bring up your immune system so it can start fighting infections on its own and protecting the whole body system, brain, cartilage, collagen, all of those pathways from further degradation. Mm-hmm. So Japanese knotweed is the primary herb for Lyme disease, and it's also one of the primary herbs for some of the other co-infections because it crosses so many systems. It's, it's a very potent anti-inflammatory. Um, one of the constituents of Japanese knotweed is resveratrol, and that I know a lot of people will recognize that word because it's been in the you know, herbal diet, anti-aging world, mm-hmm. you know, for the last few years. And resveratrol comes from um, not only knotweed, but it also comes from grape skins. But when treating Lyme disease and corn infections, the best source of resveratrol is Japanese knotweed. In fact, we started, when Stephen wrote this protocol seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, so one of the best sources was uh, Source Naturals with Spiritual. We've come now to start using the whole herb, the whole root of the plant because, I mean, I personally believe in the whole, the whole herb, the whole, all of the constituents working synergistically together because of that intelligence of the plant. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a standardized product is, is a little better. Um, but for this, the whole powdered root of Japanese knotweed, either in powder capsules or tinctures or teas. So it reduces inflammation, reduces the cytokine cascade, protects, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, so if there's spirochetes in the brain, which doesn't take long for them to migrate there, um, the knotweed goes in and shuts them down, reduces inflammation in the brain. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, so the core protocol for Lyme disease is pretty straightforward. Like I said, once you get into co-infections, it gets much more complicated and much more expanded and a little harder to suss out, but it can become extremely elegant. And I've seen really good really good results in the years I've been using this and adjusting it, adapting the protocol to suit individual symptoms and needs and dosages. Not everybody can take the recommended dosage of the, of the original protocol. So it's important to keep in mind that the herbs are tremendously powerful, very intelligent, and very adaptable and flexible. So given that it was set up for an average 150-pound person, a lot of people can handle smaller doses. Or if there's chemical sensitivity or GI tract issues going on, then it's perfectly fine, and I encourage everyone to listen to their bodies. Mm -hmm. They're intelligent, and you live in there. (laughs) You know what's going on and what feels right what doesn't feel right. And adjust the dosage as you need to. If you need to start at a teeny tiny dosage and work up to a tolerable level, that's perfectly fine. And Julie, is this something, this protocol that you develop for each individual person, is that something that that person will have to take 
for a long time, or is it something that they can eventually wean themselves off of? Both. Both. It depends on mm-hmm. how chronic, how long-term, how deep the infections are, and the symptom picture. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to think that you should start seeing improvement within 30 days and take it for 8 to 12 months. With the nature of everything that's going on, all of the variables, um, I just told Stephen the other day that for children and teenagers whose immune systems are still pretty strong and resilient, 30 days still works. I see tremendous changes within 30 days. But mm-hmm. for middle-aged people or older people or immune-compromised and lengths of dura- duration of Infections, it's not uncommon for it to be 60 days, 90 days, mm-hmm. and two years. Mm-hmm. Right. And then eventually you can drop down, reduce the dosages, eliminate some things. Um, as the immune system comes up, inflammation, cytokines go down to normal levels. And But I still recommend, once you've been infected, to keep some maintenance dose of at least knotweed, cordyceps, you know, some of the immune-enhancing, immune-modulating herbs in your body and system, especially if you live in a Lyme endemic area. Um, I don't live in a Lyme endemic area, but like I said earlier, these infections are transmitted by just about any arthropod that sucks and transmits blood. Wow. And when I go and visit my granddaughters in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I ramp up. Right. uh, Yeah, on antibacterials and my immune system. Mm -hmm. And and also it's important to remember the immune system has so many parts to it, and one of them is that we don't think of normally is our emotional body and our our state of um, hope. Or level of hope? Are we happy? Do you feel nurtured, supported, loved? Do we have um, emotional support and friends and family in the path of healing that we're choosing? Right. And whether it's allopathic or, or herbal, those are really important things not to be overlooked. Right. So what do you think it says about our society that we have a disease or an infection anyway, that is um, attacking our, from what you've said, attacking our heart and our eyes and our vision. What Does that have any meaning to you from a larger perspective? Oh, interesting way you put that. Um, well, the nature, I, I, I look at illness as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Once you've been ill, especially chronic illness, long-term illness, debilitating illness, it changes your life. A number, it's not unusual. I often get people, first-time clients will say, I just want my life back, or will I have my life back? And I have to tell them, you'll have a life, but it won't be the old one. Mm-hmm. One of the functions of a chronic illness is, to change things from the old into something new and different. It's not pleasant, it's not comfortable, often feel betrayed, but illness is a great teacher and one that 
demands attention and some due respect. Right. And it is, you know, we're one of the reasons these are becoming epidemic, they're in a state of epidemic, um, is because their habitats are changing. Mm-hmm. More as human populations grow and we move into wild ecosystems and build communities there, houses, shopping malls, and we start taking over habitats that were once natural habitats for predator prey and bacteria, deer and, and rodents. The bacteria are adapting and the term is jumping species, but you know, they don't really jump like Jimmy Cricket. They they're transferred from you know, like through biting flies, fleas, mites, ice and they're learning to adapt and live in new hosts, which we're the new host. So there are a tremendous amount of environmental implications. Mm-hmm. And I know I've, I've either heard or read Stephen talking about the plants, these intelligent plants that you have been talking about coming in after the infections are coming in. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Yes, I can. <laughs> Which you know, I get excited about because I love them so much. <laughs> yeah. Some of my favorite ones are considered invasive species, which in a community, uh, people are either love invasives or they hate them. It's kind of like cilantro or patchouli. You should love it or hate it. Um, so the herb I mentioned earlier, Japanese knotweed, which is the primary herb for not only Lyme disease but for a number of co-infections, it's an invasive species. It, Tim Scott wrote this book called Invasive Plant Medicines, and he did this really brilliant thing. He mapped the movement of Lyme disease and the movement of invasive species and found that there's almost an exact correlation of movement. They almost, if you laid one map over the other, it was almost identical. So one of the intriguing implications and that those of us who work with sacred plant medicine um, and write about and talk about is the intelligence of Gaia and the intelligence of plants, that they show up in areas where they're needed about six months before. And not just Lyme disease and not weed. I've heard it from a lot of people. I'd say, you know, use... Um, I can't think of another herb. And they said, well, God, that's interesting. It just showed up in my yard in the last couple months. <laughs> right. So those stories aren't unusual, and they're actually more and more common. But so the invasive plant species, even though it's a tricky area to get into because passions fly in both directions, right. um, they have a function. Mm-hmm. And that's one of one of the things that we need to start asking when something unusual happens or the environment's changing or something just gets our attention is what what is its function? Why is it here? Why is it doing this? Right. And just keeping in the back of our mind the, the intelligence of Gaia and the plant world that may be doing things we have no idea about. So 
maybe now is a good time to switch gears a little bit. Okay. And move into talking a little bit about but thank you by the way maybe maybe before we move on you should uh, you want to give your website so that people can find out more about the healing line book and the updates sure I'd be happy to it's www.gaianstudies.org it's one word and it's gaian g-a-i-a-n studies.org Great. And Stephen doesn't do clinical work anymore, but you do, right? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you, they could through your website. Absolutely. Okay. Go to the website, click on my name, and then there'll be on the right-hand side some other menus you can click on. One of them is herbal consultations, and that will direct you how to contact me and when I need in advance of a consultation, I work primarily long distance. Um, my clients are all over the globe now, actually. So um, it's not a problem to work via email, phone consultations, and Skype is becoming more and more of a medium. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for doing that work, and thanks to Stephen for all of his work on that, too. It's so important. Yeah, yeah, it is. Thank you. So we'll switch gears now, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the other parts of your life and the things that you, uh, the things that you've been discovering, and the path that you've been on, writing your new book, which is called "Sex and the Intelligence of the Heart: Nature, Intimacy, and Sexual Energy." Um, That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, but it's it lets you know what's going on. <laughs> um, so, Julie, why did why did you write this book? They made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about who they are. <laughs> they are, you know, the invisibles, the muses, my, my eudaimonia, that spirit that walks with you in this lifetime and says, oh, remember that agreement you made before you came into this physical form? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I, I've always been writing and love writing and passionate about it and knew there was a book or two, maybe three or four. But when I started to really look at it, and about the time my life was taking a 180-degree change, um, this theme, this subject of the book became prominent. And I went into it kicking and screaming. (laughs) I realized once I sat down to really think about it, outline it, write the proposal for the publisher, write a table of contents, even though at that moment it was still made up, um, but it was like creating my own myth, or the myth of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized how important it was not... Just for me, because writing it was healing, it was tremendously healing and clarifying and therapeutic. Right. I realized if it's that important to me, there's probably likely, you know, three or four, Mm -hmm. 20 other people that (laughs) would resonate with this and would have some true 
it or become some sort of mythic um, storyline for them on their own journeys of understanding and clarity. And the more I got into it, the more I realized there's a lot of disorientation in our culture around sex and sexuality. Tremendously disoriented. And just recently, all of the um, publicity around the resignation of the CIA director, David Petraeus. Right. Because he had an extramarital affair. Um, so we put so much emphasis on, ooh, he you know, did this horrible thing. Um, in my orientation, the extramarital affair wasn't as horrible as keeping the secret about it. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing could have been avoided, but it's hard to because of all of our cultural contamination around sex and sexuality and the rules around them and trying to fit our behavior, our needs, our wants, our desires into the rules. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And if we grow up about things and say, look, honey, this, I have some needs that aren't being met here, so let's sit down and talk about it and see what we can do. Mm-hmm. What I appreciate about the book, one of the things, is the way that you wove yourself and your stories and your philosophy into the pages of the book. And I felt by the end of the book that I that you'd modeled what you were talking about. You know, I felt an intimacy with you, and I felt I understand understood you, and to a certain extent, whatever it was that you revealed. And I just appreciated the fact that you were willing to put yourself authentically, um, you know, your views and yourself authentically into your book. And I just wondered how it felt to, you know, can you talk a little bit about the experience of putting yourself into the book that way and... Um, if you have any thoughts about it from, you know, looking at it back from, from where you are now. Yeah, I can. Um, when I started on it, I was terrified out of my mind. Um, I had a lifetime pattern of not saying things out loud. And here I was sitting down with a a contract from a publisher they essentially agreed to say things out loud. There's no way I could have written the book without saying my secrets, my family's secrets, mm-hmm. cultural secrets out loud. It would have been complete. Um, it would have been a character to leave those things out. Right. And there were days where I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want <laughs> face the page like the child in me was kicking and screaming and so there's a lot of internal negotiation going on right um, to get through each day goal setting um, and there were days when it was the most remarkable magical flawless days of writing and the magic was happening the more I got into it and the more I worked through my fears and terrors about it and doubts and, the, you know, being guided to follow one thread to the next, things I didn't expect 
where I go sit in that room each morning and really following my intuition and my and, and hits, you know, um, impulses and ideas to see where they would go. And a lot of time they worked. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they went to someplace else. Right. Well. Wow. Yeah, and then when it came out, the terror didn't stop after I finished writing it. It didn't stop during the editing. And it <laughs> certainly was present in the room the first time I did a book reading in my hometown. Right. <laughs> and it was tremendously upsetting to me to do that. <laughs> well, it took a lot of courage for you to, to write this book and put it out there, and I, I just think it's such a gift. Oh, thank you, Kira. I appreciate that a lot. So one of the things about the the book is um, you you're you're a deep ecologist. I think you say that yourself, and you you take the idea of the deep ecologist and that comes out of eco psychology and some other places that you know we are separate from the planet and that separation is the separation from Earth is causing so many problems in our society and our culture and. Um, with the earth itself and within ourselves. And you take it one step further and you say that our bodies are, you know, our sexuality is part of our bodies and that is part of the earth. And separating ourselves from our sexuality is the same problem as separating ourselves from the earth and the planet. And I appreciated that. I don't, you know, you just don't hear that coming from anywhere else. <laughs> So it's great to hear you talk about that and just be really open about it. Um, and I appreciated also some of the um, the different experiences that you talked about in your stories, your different the different peak experiences that you have had that were very kinesthetic and sexual as well. Some of them sexual, some of them maybe more defined as kinesthetic or somatic. But not everybody seems to have that orientation. And um, so I think you're uniquely positioned to write this book. Um, do you mind if we talk a little bit about some of the peak experiences? Because I found those so interesting. No, that would be great. Okay. Um, so you talk about one of them where you are around 15 and you're riding a horse near your farm. And... You have an experience where um, what you you describe in the book as a you know connection to the numinous. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I can. I mean, just um, hearing you describe it a little bit um, brings it back pretty fully. Hmm. Um, I think it was one of the first. If I stretch, I could probably go back a little bit farther. But the time in my life at 15 where I was starting to become much more aware of my environment and my family psychosis, I, the hunger in me to become who I am now, though at the time I didn't know that's what it was, started to rattle around inside, and I had a love-hate relationship with the Lutheran church that was just up the road from my farm, or family farm, and there was something there, but I couldn't name it, and it was a 
difficult time. I found um, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Um, but I still had this hunger for something that I couldn't name. And I would often ride my horse out to the back fields of our farm to get away from my... to have some time alone. I, I still need a tremendous amount of time and space alone, but that's how I survived those difficult times was I would just get on my horse. And this particular day, it was autumn, late August, fall sometime. And it was one of those Midwest farm August days when the grasshoppers um, and freshly mowed fields of hay and, and oats and the smells were coming up from the ground, and uh, I was on my horse, and we were just walking uh, fairly slow pace, taking it easy, late in the day, warm sun, butterflies and dust kicking up. And there was this movement um, touch I felt on my body that responded in a way where you guys getting goosebumps. Hmm. and literally all of the hair on the back of my neck was standing up, and electrical energy in my nervous system became heightened. And I know we've all had a similar experience when we felt like somebody was right behind us, or when somebody's staring at us, we can turn around and see them. But when I turned around, I fully expected to see someone standing there. Hmm wasn't, but the presence was overwhelmingly strong, and it kept moving in, and there was a, there was a smell that accompanied the feeling, one that was extraordinarily unusual and faintly familiar at the same time, huh. warm and delicious and comforting, and by then I'd stopped my horse just to focus on what this feeling was. It was unsettling and interesting and compelling and and captivating. And I felt held in this unseen presence, this invisible presence. And accompanying that in one moment was a voice that came from outside of me and from no physical person around me, I was the only one on my horse out there in the field, and this voice said, I have given you everything you need, and it was a male sort of voice, but um, I interpreted it to be a a male voice at the time, could have been androgynous for all I know, but it was very clear and very strong, and impacted me and I spent a good deal of years afterwards trying to figure out what it meant. Right. And it's so interesting the way you describe that experience. Um, Just so physical, the way that you describe it, the scent, what you felt on your skin, you know, all of those descriptions are oftentimes not present when you talk to somebody about an experience of the numinous. 
And I just appreciate that so much. Yeah, and that's really, that's an interesting point, um, because two things come to mind when you say that is, one, that's naturally how I move in the world. I'm kinesthetic, so I think Mm -hmm. my body. But also, the other primary thing and the most important thing to take away from that is to move through the world, to be completely present, to have numinous experiences like that, and we all need them. Human beings need those experiences. We don't feel so alone, so isolated, so um, abandoned. We need to know there's, we have a need to know, to remember, to have some intimation of otherness mm-hmm. in life, um, an invisible hand, an invisible companionship, somebody, something that you do that's really powerful and I've experienced are guided meditations and I'm wondering if there's one that could 
uh, that we could do that's short, maybe just even a minute or so, um, that would help the listeners to understand how they can start getting to know, um, you know, to listen, as you say, to listen more carefully and to be able to dial down the the subtlety of their experience, you know, of the senses. Is there something that you can think of that might be able to work for that? Uh, yeah, a number of them. Okay. Yeah. You want to do a short one? Um, well, you know, at a very basic core level is asking how does it feel? Right. How does this feel? Um, and then going through your house and practicing how does it feel? How does this feel? Mm-hmm. You know, it feels old, it feels new, it feels needs to be changed or something. Um, so one of the, the very core, core ones is um, the inner child exercise. Mm-hmm. And the brief background on this is that we all have a sense of the different voices inside of our heads. And we even talk about it superficially, like, you know, part of me wants to go to this party Part of me wants to stay home and snuggle up in front of the fire. But how many of us have a way to reconcile those different voices? Right. So human beings are a multiple personality. Eric Byrne in the 60s really articulated this um, through transactional analysis. So just to introduce you to it, and this is core and it's brief and it's incredibly potent. And it's the one of the things that really will change your life if you do the work, if you do it. And it is work. It will bring up stuff. It will be uncomfortable. It feels weird. It feels awkward. It feels stupid. Um, but over time, you'll start to see the impact of this work in your life and level of energy coming up, joy, spontaneity, sensitivity, sensory acuity, the world eventually starts to take on this luminous, like looking through stained glass. Um, it's the most incredible thing if you do it mm-hmm. a little bit every day. Sounds... So this is... What? I was going to say, it sounds worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> I went into it kicking and screaming and hesitantly, but... Over time, even doing it a little bit each week, I started to see the changes that I was going through as a result of doing that work and and decided to do it more focused every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so until it became a way of life, it does get easier. Mm-hmm. So we'll just start and have you take a deep breath, but make sure you're sitting somewhere comfortably, comfortable chair. Doing this at home, it's nice to turn off the phone and distractions. And take some deep breaths, close your eyes. Like, let your eyes sink into the back of your head. And then see standing in front of you, the little child that you were. 
and notice everything about this child. How old they are, their posture, what they're wearing, how they feel. How do they feel? Notice how you feel seeing this part of you. Then ask the child of you if they have anything that they want or need to say to you. And it's important to not censor or to interrupt the child many times. This is the first time they've been given an opportunity to have their own voice. And if the child is willing, ask if they would let you give them a hug. And if they say yes, then for real, to lift up your real arms and wrap them around your child and hold them closer and closer until your arms are wrapped all the way around your shoulders, so close. Make sure that you thank your child for coming to be with you. And then it's always nice afterwards to pick up a journal and write down everything that happened, everything your child said, everything you felt. And because this child is a very real part of you, you've started in that moment to make a relationship with the deep part of you. And children often don't trust adults and or grown-ups, and you're a grown-up. So in the beginning, it's important to show up and make relationship with your child for changes to happen, they will be watching to see if you keep your word, keep your agreement with them, if you listen, if you proactively advocate for getting their needs and wants met in the world. Hmm. And if it feels too weird, remember not only are human beings a multiple personality, that every age we have been, every age we will be, is inside of us. And that at certain times in our life, those ages um, are expressed, often through rites of passages, at times when we leave a certain age and go into another one or an age. But also, every species on Earth goes to ego state changes, their ecological functions. So to think of it one way is to imagine a puppy. And, you know, puppies have particular energy and spirit and how you feel when you see a puppy and your heart just opens up. Or when we see our favorite plants coming up in the spring and we're so excited and, you know, we've been waiting for them and they just bring so much hope and inspiration. 
fall in love with plants and puppies or kittens, and the the young of any species will have a similar will have a similar response to them. And contrast that to an old dog or um, an ancient tree. Hmm. There's a different energy that comes into being at a different age as we age that's not there when we're younger. Right. So every species has this internal multi ego state function and expression. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that meditation that I will, well, I, I have practiced something similar to that for a while, but I hopefully, uh, I'm hoping that our listeners will um, take that and work with it as well. Can you make the connection for us, Julie, between that meditation and working with the inner child and um, how that brings us closer to the earth or, or decreases our separation? Oh, yes, I can. See, the child part of us is the one that knows they're invisible. The child part of us that talks to plants, that knows everything is alive. The child part of us that bonds with the earth. It's the child part of us that uh, well, works, knows without hesitation that they're invisible, that everything is intelligent, that everything's alive, um, that they're companions. We, as we age, we lose that capacity um, for talking to plants. We lose the capacity to sense and to feel invisible. Um, we believe what our culture tells us, that they don't exist, that that was child's play. So when we do the inner child work and integrate that part and give that part permission to be alive in the world and literally see through the eyes of the child, their hearts wide open, falling in love with life over and over and over again, that facilitates the natural movement back to... Um, our bond, our relationship, it brings us back into the circle of life. It's an integral, integral piece. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much. And I want to ask you one final question. We're about out of time here. Uh, you have used so many beautiful quotes in your book, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot by asking you this question, but... <laughs> 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 Do you have one that comes to mind? I'm sure you wouldn't have put them in your book if you didn't like them all, but do you have one of the quotes that comes to mind that we could uh, use as a way to close our conversation? Oh, wow. Um, yep, you did put me on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, Ethel Barrymore said... We grow up the moment we take our first laugh at ourselves. Wonderful. Julie McIntyre, thank you so much for being with us at the New School of Commonweal. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Kira. I appreciate it a great deal. <laughs> 